started a new series over the last couple of weeks called The Emmaus Road. And what that is, is if you don't know, is, is, is out of the book of Luke. And it's where Jesus appeared to two guys that are standing there. And he starts asking them questions. They're like, where have you been? Do you not? And this is after he's risen. This is after, you know, the resurrection and all of that. And he says, where have you been? Have you not seen what's going on? And then he begins to open their eyes to the scriptures. And at that point in time, the scriptures were the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. They were living it out as they spoke. And so what we are going to do in this Christmas season, because it's so crazy and it's so chaotic, and we always say things like Jesus is the reason for the season, and yet we don't act like it, but we say it, is that we are going to go and we're going to find Christ in the Old Testament through His works, through His appearing. There's some of that through some of the offices and things that are going on in there. We already talked last week about the prophecies and how all these different prophecies pointed to Christ. But there's so much more to that. Jesus Christ is on every page in the Old Testament. He is in every single book. And you're going to see that. And this is going to take approximately 12 weeks. It kind of depends on how some of them jump around and, and, and how. Because I don't want to overload you with information because this is going to be a lot of information. Okay, But we're going to do something that most churches do not. This was not taught to me in Bible school. That will tell you how little this actually gets taught. Why? Because we're under the New Covenant. Right? So let's focus on that. But the problem we have is we don't realize that the new covenant is built upon the old, upon the foundation of the old. And so when we get done with this little exercise that we have here over the next several weeks, you guys are going to understand Scripture probably better than 90% of the people in this world. And you're going to have an appreciation for the coming Messiah of everything. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it, when you get this, this clears up a lot of the doctrinal discrepancies between major churches. Because, again, it's the foundation. But it's the importance of the Bible. We've got to have an importance to the Word. And so I've got a few quotes here for some of the founders of our nations. George Washington said, It is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and the Bible. Does anybody think George Washington may have been a Christian? Absolutely he was. The secular universities are trying to take all of that away because they don't want us to be founded upon anything. They want us to be founded upon nothing. That way everybody gets to decide what is right in their own eyes. And that's certainly prophesied in Romans 1. But here he is, he's saying we can't govern a nation. We can't be a, 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 a people that have one voice and going in one direction without God and certainly without the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Very intelligent man. Patrick Henry said, the Bible is worth all the other books that have ever been written. All of them combined, the Bible's worth more. And here's one that you don't expect to see because this came from Napoleon, who was not a Christian. The Bible is no mere book but is a living creature with a power that conquers all who oppose it. So even people who aren't in the faith, if you will, recognize there is something incredible about that book. And that's what we're going to look at today. Is We're going to look at a basic, quick, little bit of an overview, a little bit of a history to give you an understanding of what this thing is. What kind of animal this is. Now some of this, if you were here last January when we started our Worldview series, we went through a little bit of this, but some of you guys weren't here, and it's always good to recap this kind of stuff. But here's the basics of the Bible. It's 66 books, written by 40 authors, over a 1,500 year span. It's actually it's probably closer to 2,000 when you, when you break it down. This is not one book 
It's a number of books. It's a collection of books that form one book. And we need to understand that because the intricacy of it is so skillfully designed. It has what we call an integrated message system. And if you have a military background, that may sound familiar to you because of the fact that what they would do is when they're sending these um, hidden messages and trying to communicate, they would have bits and pieces all over the place. So that way, if you capture one part and that gets taken away, you could still put the rest of it together. So what I'm saying is that Jesus is on every page. The Messiah is on every page. It's in there. If you took the book of Job out, you will still find the Messiah. If you take the book of Exodus out, reading the rest of it, you could still find the Messiah. In other words, that if we lost a part of this canon of Scripture, you still find Jesus Christ. And this isn't just in theme. Okay? It's not just thematically speaking. It is speaking that He is literally there. It's found in the New Testament everywhere. The theme of the Old Testament is there, but all of the things are put there specifically. Every number is placed there with a reason, by the Holy Spirit. Every place that is named is there deliberately. All of it is. Every name, every river, every comma is there deliberately by the Holy Spirit. This was written by man, influenced and inspired by God. In fact, uh, uh, Moses, they say, wrote the, the beginning of the Bible, the first five books, or something like that. I'm not saying that right. But I mean, some speculate that he didn't just sit there and write it, that God gave him every single letter that he wrote. And because of this, because of this intricacy of Scripture, we know that this thing is outside of our time domain. In other words, this couldn't have happened from somebody that was inside of time because it talks about the beginning to the very end, things that haven't happened yet, and has done that all along the way. So it has to be somebody that is outside of time that can look at the whole span of time, which that describes a person. You know who that person might be? That's God. Okay, I'll give you a hint. So here's the breakdown. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. If you're good at math, that comes up to 66. If my wife had done it, you probably had 74. But yeah, she's a teacher too. Isn't that crazy? But you can break down these Old Testament books into three categories. There's three categories of books. There's the historical, there's the poetic or the wisdom books, and then there's the prophetic books. For those of you taking notes, I am going to attempt to go slower today. I know I talk fast. So you have the historical books, the poetic or the wisdom books, and the prophetic books. So what does this look like? In the historical books, there's 17 of them. And you can kind of see how they break down. I've got them all labeled there, but it's basically Genesis through Esther. In the poetic or the wisdom books, there's five of them. That's a number that we can, we can live with, right? Job through the Song of Solomon. And many people don't realize that Job is part of what's considered the wisdom literature. And in that, because it's not specifically talking about history, that one could kind of go either way, um, but there is a lot of wisdom in that. And then, of course, the prophetic books, there's 17 of those with Isaiah through Malachi. And so each one has its place. And when you understand that little intricacy, those three labels, it gives you an understanding of what you're reading. 
Because, you know, if I read the book of Genesis, what am I reading? I'm reading a historical book. I'm reading something that's telling me the history of something. But if I read the book of Isaiah, I know that its focus isn't on the history, although there's history in it. It is on the prophecies that are coming. And so it helps you to grasp a little bit of what's going on. But you can actually drill these down even farther than this in the Old Testament because they get grouped in a different way. The first one being the first five books of the Bible, which is known as the Law or the Torah or the Pentateuch. It was the books of Moses. They call it the book of the law. Torah is just the Hebrew word for five books, and same with Pentateuch. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Right? First five. We knew that. But the next group has everything to do with the Babylonian captivity that happened with Israel. And you've got to remember, the, the Old Testament focuses on a nation, which would be Israel. How it started and the struggles they went through all the way up to the New Testament, which is the story of a man, would be Jesus Christ. Okay, So these get broken down in a couple of different ways. The pre-captivity, which is Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. And then the post-captivity, which is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Just three. Dealing with before they're captured and a little bit during their, their, their captive state. And then, of course, after of what's going on and how they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And you see a lot of that with Nehemiah. So your prophetic bro books get broken down into two categories, with being both major and minor prophets. Now, that is not in the uh, uh, ranking system, if you will, but it more of is the, the amount of content that is there. Your major prophets have a lot more to say than your minor prophets. There's only five major prophets, with that being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Your minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Why don't we name kids like that anymore? That'd be a lot of fun. We need some more, uh, some more Hoseas and Haggai's and Zephaniah's in this world. So that's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Now the New Testament gets broken down into three categories as well. And this one we'll probably be a lot more familiar with. And it'll make a lot more sense. Why? Because we know our New Testament better than we do our Old Testament. The first one would be the historical books, which is the Gospels and Acts. And you might as well call Acts the Gospels. The Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Two of those are written by Luke. Luke and Acts. And so those are the historical books. They're showing Jesus' birth all the way through His death and resurrection. And then, of course, Acts is the beginning of the church, how the church was formed, and then how it grew and how it spread following along the prophecies that went along. The next group would be the doctrinal books, being Romans through the book of Jews. Pretty much all the other ones. Okay? Because there's only one prophetic book, and that's the book of Revelation. And so you see all of these, you get these broken down. And last week I told you that the reason that a lot of people can't see Jesus in the Old Testament, see, we have the ability because of hindsight. It's already happened. We can go back and look. But they did it. And we're always like, man, how did you guys miss it? Jesus shows up. How did you miss it? Because it's written in a mosaic, if you will. And a mosaic is a bunch of individual little pieces that form a bigger picture, a broader understanding. Now, why would that be? Why did God put it that way? Well, there's really two schools of thought in that. The first one is, is we have a real enemy. And he's trying to not just delve his plan because Satan is not all-knowing. And he's certainly not all-powerful. And so it's almost like this is coded. But it also makes you dig. It makes you study. It makes you 
understand what happens is when we get to the New Testament, it begins to make a lot more sense of what's going on in the Old. So what is the Old Testament? A lot of liberal professors and scholars are trying to get people to believe that the Old Testament record is nothing more than a man searching for God. Why? Because they don't believe the book is, is, is divine in any way. They probably don't believe in God. They're, they're, they're basically people who are looking for answers that they couldn't answer because they live in a pre-scientific world. Because in their minds, science answers everything. It brings everything to clarity and it all makes sense. And because of our, our knowledge in science is that they have now eliminated the necessity for God. And so that's what's the goal. It's man searching for answers, basically. But that is not what the Old Testament is at all. It's not man searching for God. It's a chronicling of God's revelation of Himself to human beings. It's God's look for man. But because of this, this, this mindset that a lot of church people have without even realizing what's happening, is that it's turned the Old Testament into nothing more than a collection of moral stories with these colorful characters whom experience that we can just learn and grow from, right? What about Noah? Oh, that's not a literal story. It's just allegorical. And it says that we should just always be obedient and just trust God. That God will take care of it. It's a good story. We don't look at it from a historical narrative that, holy cow, this thing flooded and destroyed all the living creatures except for eight people and a handful of animals. I mean, we don't look at it that way. How about David and Goliath? We take that story and we apply it to ourselves like, God is bigger than any giants in your life. You know, go to a football game. What do they say? Well, they're the underdogs. They're the Davids, but they can take down that Goliath. You know, I had a wrestling coach one time when I was not good at wrestling. Let's just put it that way. But I was going up against the eventual state champion. And he told me, he said, Chris, that's your Goliath. And I want you, I want you to go out there and I want you to fling them stones. And I was shocked at anything biblical was coming from him. He's like, I want you to just have confidence in your abilities, confidence in who you are. And, and you just go up there and you just take that Goliath down. So I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. He pinned me eight seconds later. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I hooked up with that guy. You know how you grab on? And he's holding me in the air. And I'm like, how are you doing this? This is, this is not normal human strength. He's really a giant. And so needless to say, I tried to do something and it didn't work. And from his knees, he picked me up and turned me over and put me on my back. And I just laid there so I didn't die. You know, I was horrible at wrestling. But again, that's what we do. We take the, the reality of these Old Testament stories, the truth and all that, and we just try to make some fictional, uh, motivational thing about ourselves. And sure, you can gleam some stuff. from, But that's not what the Old Testament is at all. We can pull some moral stories out, and we can find things that we can apply to our lives from the stories, but these, that wasn't the point of it. It's from the book of Genesis, clear through the book of Revelation, it has one single solitary thing in mind, and that is the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. And when you keep that in the back of your head as you read it, it begins to come alive to you. It makes sense to you. The Old Testament contains many different books with many different stories, but ultimately it's just one story. It's redemption. The 39 books of the Old Testament are united by a common thread, and they're centered on the promise that God made to redeem mankind. And that thread doesn't stop at the book of Malachi. It doesn't stop there. It goes back on through because you know what? Mankind's not fully redeemed yet. It's been purchased. But we're not there yet because we're not in glory with the Lord. 
We're still on this earth. Our spirits are redeemed. We're made uh, redeemed. We're made righteous by God. But we're not quite there yet because there's still more that's going to come, which he talks about it. And so a lot of the Old Testament questions that we have that just don't make sense are answered in the new. And we're going to look at some of those. But the bottom line is this, is that Jesus is the theme of the entire Bible. And you need to understand that when you're looking at something. Understanding the Bible is literally one of the most important things for a believer. But often they simply open up a passage or two and they never really fully grasp the entire picture. We go find some scripture that we like. We go, oh, for God so loved the world, you know, or I can do all things through Christ. Christ who strengthens me, you know, and we take those and we, we just read those. Oh, yes, Lord, it's another good day. And those, th there's a place for that. But there's a deeper understanding. You can grow and learn from some of that, but your experience with God's word will be greatly enhanced when you clearly understand how the Bible's individual books all come together to form one incredible integrated work, all of it. And you've got to understand that. Now, I think most of us in our room have a, a, an understanding of that. But the truth is, is if we really dig down deep and we're honest with ourselves, we say we understand it, but we don't act like we truly believe that. Because we still constantly do the things. We love those motivational things. You know, it's like 21 scriptures to make your day better. Well, that's good. But just don't make your day better. Make your life better. And how do you do that? Understand what's going on. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Second, second, yeah, Timothy chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14. This is Paul talking to Timothy. But you must continue in the things from which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What are the Holy Scriptures he's talking about? The Old Testament. It says that from child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why do we believers, when we're trying to help somebody come to faith in Jesus Christ, start in the book of Matthew? Paul didn't. Timothy didn't. These guys didn't. It's because that's, we, we know this part. You see, we're not starting with the foundation. We're starting with the outcome. We're starting at the end of the story. But we're not building this. And this is why a lot of believers fall away. Because they've never had that solid foundation. That this thing is one book all the way through. The Holy Scripture Paul's talking about here is the Old Testament. That they're able to make you wise to salvation. And it says that a person who studies their Old Testament must be able to find Jesus there. Or Paul's writing here would be wrong. If you can't find Jesus in the Old Testament then what Paul said was a lie. Jesus is the key to the entire Bible, and it's impossible to understand the Old Testament apart from Him, which is why in the Emmaus Road, Jesus had to open their eyes to the Scriptures. Because until they put Him in those Scriptures that they have known since a child, none of them really made sense. And this is why many believers that do not read their Old Testament, and they don't really comprehend it. Because they're not looking on, for Jesus on every single page. In John 5.39, and we read this last week, it says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. And then he goes on and on and on. He's talking about the writings of Moses here. But what is he talking about when he says Scriptures and, and things like that? He said there are so many people in their events and the symbols in the Old Testament that foreshadow Jesus. 
There's so many of them. His followers diligently studied the Old Testament. They were trying to find the key to eternal life. And the entire time that they were missing what was right in front of their face the whole time. I mean, in there, it's just like, who do you say that I am? Well, I say you're this, or I'll, some say you're that, and, uh, but I say that you're the Son of God. And it's like, nobody revealed that to you. It was the Holy Spirit. You know, I mean, it's all of this stuff. And so there are so many different ways that Christ has been revealed in the Old Testament. And here are just a few of them. In His titles, the titles that He has in the Old Testament. His work as Creator is one. His role as the sustainer of creation. He says, I hold everything together in my hand. His appearances, we call those Christophanies, and that's a theological word. It just means the appearances of Christ, which I, I personally believe, and we'll talk about this more when we get there, is that all the appearances you see of physical God in the Old Testament, I believe are Christ. We'll talk about that later. The types and the portraits of persons, the institution, the events, and the ceremonies that all point to him, and there are dozens of them. The feasts are just one example. The tabernacles, another example. I mean, there are so many of them. We're going to look at these in depth. The offices of the Old Testament, like the prophets, the priests, and the kings, they prefigure the work that is to come through Christ because he was all of those. God's promises, and especially the major covenants that find their fulfillment in Him. Now, this is something that the church has lacked desperately because we focus only on the new covenant. But the new covenant was built on those old covenants and promises and fulfilled there. And Jesus said that Himself. And of course, the last part with that would be the Messianic prophecies, which we talked about minutely. I mean, I think we had like 12 or 13 of them that prophesied things that Jesus would do when He got here. And there are hundreds. There are tons of them. And we only looked at a few. And if you've been following this good or God stuff that, that Janice has been teaching, you know the astronomical figure of him just figuring out eight of them. It's unbelievable. And so in this, so we need to understand that the Old Testament is deliberately incomplete. It wasn't all right there. It takes what happened when Christ showed up to have some of this make sense. And the Old Testament overwhelms many believers, but this is really because they don't see the big picture of it. And so since they struggle with the understanding, they and maybe a few of the things that point to Christ, but the bottom line they just say is, why don't we just focus on the New Testament where Christ actually is, not just the stuff that points to Him. But the problem is by ignoring the Old Testament, you deprive this, the, yourself of all the insights and stuff that are fulfilled in the New Testament. And so to have a full understanding of the New Testament, it requires a knowledge of the Old. Because the New Testament did not start from scratch. It builds on the foundation of the Old. The New Testament in a lot of its writing presupposes a thorough understanding of the Old Testament Scripture. So much of it in the fact that the New Testament loses its meaning without that foundation. Because you see the apostles time and time again quoting Scriptures back in the Old Testament, making a knowledge and making a case for Christ every single time. It presupposes that we already know this because they quote it so much. Everything in the Old Testament is working its way to Christ's arrival. And that this new covenant that we enjoy we take for granted. I mean, it's, it's all pointing towards that. And you can see that with the writers of the New T Testament because they believed in the foundation of the Old Testament so much and you can see it in the number of times that they quote or allude to the Old Testament. So let me give you just a quick number here. In the New Testament, there are 4,105 allusions to the Old Testament. What's an allusion? It's, it's a person, place, a thing, something along those lines that allude to the coming Messiah. 
there are actually 855 verses that are quoted word for word in the New Testament out of the Old. That's 10%. That's a big number. The book of Revelation, which is the final, the finality of all that we're waiting for, the finality of everything that God's doing, quotes the the Old Testament 249 times, more than any other book. I think Matthew was the second. So do you think in order to understand Revelation, you need to have an understanding of the Old Testament? You better believe it. Because there's so much in there. And so let's look at this a little deeper. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Right? So This is the Gospel summed up by Paul. That in the Scriptures you see all of this coming. But what Scripture is he talking about? Well, of course, here he's talking about the Old Testament. And Paul knows that our understanding of the gospel is incomplete if we believe that Christianity just came out of nowhere, that it was just this consummation of what had been promised of the Old. That's the bottom line, is it was the consummation of what God had promised in the Old Testament. But we should not and cannot instantly assume that every time Paul or someone else refers to the Scriptures, that they only refer to the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you one place here, and there's a few of these. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and verse 17 and 18, This is Paul again talking to Timothy. It says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Okay? Right? Many of us have read this dozens of times. I have no doubt of that. But we never look a little bit deeper. What about, he just, because Paul's telling us, the scripture says, he's telling us what he thinks the scriptures are. It says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Well, that's Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4. So he goes right back to what would be consistent with what he was doing. But what about that second part? The labor is worthy of his wages. That's not in the Old Testament. That's out of the book of Luke, chapter 10 and verse 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. It's not in the Old Testament. So what did Paul just tell us that he thinks the Scriptures are? It's the Old Testament. But at a minimum, the writing of Luke is also Scripture. You see, a lot of people argue today that the Old Testament are Scriptures and that the New Testament, you can't necessarily trust their late writings and all of that. Well, this tells us a couple of things. First of all, in Paul's mind, who was probably the greatest apostle, that the Scriptures also included the writings of Luke at a minimum. But if you get the writings of Luke, then you've got to accept Matthew, Mark, and John because they're a lot in the same. And then, of course, if, if Luke's gospel is there, then the book of Acts has got to be a given. And then Paul's foundation of everything was based off of a lot of that because he sat there and learned from those guys for several years. So it shows us that the New Testament is every bit of Scripture. But another reason this is important is because there is a movement out there today called the Hebrew Roots Movement who seem to think that for somehow we are underneath the law of the Mosaic Covenant. And through that, any time that these guys refer to the Scriptures, they say, you've got to go back and look how we're supposed to do things. There is an element of truth in that, but, and we'll go into a lot more detail when we start talking about covenants, but, but Paul right here is showing us that in his mind that Luke's writings are the Scriptures because he was familiar with them. 
He quotes them directly. You also see it in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. That's a direct quote from the book of Luke. That means that Luke's book predates this book to Timothy. So it also gives us a timeline a little bit more that just gives more concrete evidence to the reliability of Scripture. Not that you guys need that, but it's important. So Paul is showing us exactly what he thinks the Scriptures are, both the Old Testament and the New. And up through church history, the church looked at the whole canon of Scripture as necessary. Everything there is to believe you. We formed our beliefs, our foundation, our lives off the writings of the Bible. But in the mid-19th century, assaults from within the church did a lot of damage to scriptural authority. In other words, in the 1800s, a lot of things started to come out because now we were beginning to enter in what they call a scientific era. And so to make the Bible line up with what the scientists were saying, they began to twist and change some of the scripture, scriptural meaning, the obvious meanings, and form a lot of new doctrines and things like that. And they were betraying the trust as stewards of the Word, because the clergy allowed the Bible to be reduced to nothing more than mere literature, trying to make everything a simple analogy instead of understanding it of a redemptive history. And this is important because it was out of this, they were, they were just saying, well, that's just analogy. That doesn't literally mean what it says. You know, and so they took out the authority of Scripture, all because of the scientific world that they were entering into. Well, we can't let science advance, so that we have to be able to, to line these things up. And the question they never asked is, has man ever been wrong before? Go read Genesis 3. Did man screw anything up there? Is it possible that they're wrong? How much time has science changed in your lifetime? It changes all the time. I remember, and I told you guys about this, but a few years ago that the scientists said that we found a planet that has a 100% chance of having life on it because it meets all the criteria that this earth has. And so I guarantee you, when we get there, we'll find life. And they sent a probe up there to find it. And when they found it, it turns out it wasn't a planet, it was a ball of gas. Think science is ever wrong? Of course it is. Ravi Zacharias said this, and if you don't follow Ravi Zacharias, you need to. The man is brilliant. Somebody said that whatever Ravi writes, God reads. That's smart, dude. He said this, The text of Scripture was brought under judgment, suspect and positioned as a piece of literature, to be dissected and dismembered at the hands of scholars with unhidden pretexts. The Scriptures were well on their way to being dismissed as nothing more than an ethnic utopianism, punctuated with altru altruistic pronouncements. He uses big words, by the way. Guy's smart, okay? So just write them down and go home and look them up. By stripping the Bible of divine authorship, liberal scholarship made it just another piece of literature, open to attack and critique. It was no longer a God-authored book, but a man-concocted collection. This was no longer theology from God to us, but anthropology about us and our thoughts toward God. In short, the author of the Scriptures was renamed. It's no longer a divine book that came from God. It was a bunch of men that wrote down stuff that they couldn't understand. And here we go. The bottom line is this. When we look at the Old Testament, it is a written record of redemptive history. The Bible, in and of itself, when we look at this, the whole focus of the Old Testament, and even into the New, is not historical from the stance that we think of history very chronologically minded. But we look at it from a salvation history or a redemptive history, however you want to say it. Because the Bible contains extensive history in the idea that we see the very beginning, 
with the creation account, and it goes clear through the ending of time with the new heavens and new earth. But the biblical history is a very specific type, and is, is this salvation history, this, this redemptive history. Critics try to use this fact to put the Bible down that you can't trust it because it leaves out all these, these major important parts in history. But those omissions simply mean that those periods are not relevant to what God was doing. They're not relevant to the salvation history that the Bible... What's the point of the Bible? To bring mankind to Christ. So it writes down the things that are intricate to that. So some of the stuff that it leaves out, for example, is the Bible really barely touches on the 400-year period that came between the time of the patriarchs and the Exodus when they... Even though there was like a lot of significant events that took place in the secular world history and it, all of that, it, it has nothing to do with salvation history or even the rise and fall of the various Egyptian dynasties that took place. They really have very little to do with what God was doing because Egypt was just simply a place where Israel was for a time and once they were gone, they were gone. And so it doesn't go back and hit all of those things. And we have to understand the difference here because we don't look at it in a chronological type thing. We've got to look at it from the point of salvation history in which it is a complete coherent history for God's purposes. It's a record of events that actually occurred. It's not these fictitious stories designed with nothing more in mind to teach us some lessons. And so with salvation, you can trace the development of the nation of Israel and its records. Uh, it records God's dealing with His chosen people. God chose and formed the nation of Israel to bring salvation to all mankind, and His Word necessarily records the history of His dealings with this people. It goes through all of that. I mean, you see it with Genesis chapter 12. Chapter 11 is, is the uh, Tower of Babel in Genesis. And God had told them, I want you to disperse, I want you to go, I want you to fill it right after the time of Noah. Uh, I want you to fill the earth again, I want you to multiply, I want you to spread out among the world. And they didn't do it, they wanted to just congregate together. And so God confused their languages and sent them apart. But He took for Himself a remnant, starting with Abraham, and said, I'm going to form a nation that you will be my people and I will be your God. And you trace that all the way through. And so let's look at this very briefly. Okay, because I know we're running short on time, but very briefly, we're going to look through a lot of these historical books and just give you a nutshell understanding of what's going on. So we'll start with Genesis, which is nothing more than the book of beginnings, and it's the seed plot to the whole Bible. You start with where did everything come from, showing God making everything perfect. That's what it is. We see where death and destruction entered into his perfect world, and it was because of sin, man's sin. And Lucifer's sin, you see both of those there. Even though God pronounces punishment on mankind for his sin, he immediately provides a glimpse into his plan to redeem and reconcile man back to, back to himself. And so, and after that, you see that God set apart a people in himself, in the Hebrew, starting with Abraham, and it runs all the way through the Israelites in bondage with the Egyptians. That is the book of Genesis in 3.7 seconds. Okay? The book of Exodus is all about redemption. It records God's people beginning as a nation and in, in incubating for centuries in Egypt. But you see God freeing them through the use of the ten plagues, which were direct um, spit in the face of the gods of Egypt. Every one of those lines up with some false god that they had. But what you see here is God cement His bond with them by giving Him, after they escaped His law, and establishing the priesthood. Very important things that took place there. And what's funny is despite all that God did for them, they continually disobey, they continually rebel, primarily through idolatrous practice. All the things that God said don't do, they continue to do, even though they saw the greatest encounter of God to man probably in the history of mankind. You get over to Leviticus, and that's all about atonement and worship. 
It details laws God gave them to benefit them in the wilderness, uh, which provide an instruction manual for holiness. A condition which these guys have to acquire and maintain to be in the presence of God and certainly to serve as a nation of priests. Have to have it. It's beautiful that we don't have to do the stuff that they did. In the book of Numbers, it traces their journey to the promised land, which took a lot longer than it should have because of their unbelief. They didn't think that they could enter in, so they went back and said, oh, we can't do it. But it's transitions one generation to the next where the generation that left Egypt, you see them die off, but then the new generation which come, you get to see them enter into the Canaan, which was the promised land. In Deuteronomy, you see the restatement of the law to His people and the renewal of His covenant with them. And it signifies to them a new beginning as they prepare to conquer Canaan. Enter into the promised land. In the book of Joshua, you show the conquest of Canaan. And under Joshua, the division of the land that goes among the twelve tribes. The twelve tribes of Israel, which we've all heard before. This land was promised way back to Abraham. But now, you see the beginning of the fulfillment, hundreds of years later, promised way back to Abraham. In the book of Judges, it's the story of how the Israelites habitually turned their back on God and the judgment that God enforced against them. If you just saw the Bible on, on the History Channel, they did a brilliant job of showing that along the way. Because if I was God, I'd have smited them all. I'd have just said, you know what, forget you guys, I'll go find somebody else. Because it's just constant. And so God enforces his judgments against them, and it was usually by an attack on a foreign nation. But raise up these leaders, which they were called judges, and they would deliver the people from the enemy, and they would restore order to the land. But, you know, this book here, which is interesting to read, is it's a microcosm of the entire span of Israel's history with this constant cycle of sin and repentance, and sin and repentance, over and over again. You see it all the way throughout. Then you get to the book of Ruth, which is about a Moabite widow who leaves her home because of her love for a mother-in-law, Naomi, who was an Israelite. She was, Ruth was not, but Naomi was. And she meets Boaz, and we know the story. But this shows God's plan for accepting the Gentiles, not just the Israelites, into His future new covenant, which is coming. In 1 Samuel, you see the transition in Israel from a theocracy to a monarchy. Because why? They were crying for a king. They wanted one. They wanted to be like all the other nations, even though God said, I want you separated, and I just want you to follow me. But they didn't think that was good enough. And God warned them about having a king, but the people demanded it, so God allowed it. And it started with Saul. And you see in 1 Samuel the highs and lows of Saul's reign and the conflict that he has with David. You get into 2 Samuel, which covers David's reign and God's promise to him that he sets up as an everlasting dynasty. And you also see some of the highs and lows of David's reign. More highs than lows, but the lows were bad enough. In 1 and 2 Kings, you see David's death and Solomon's succession to the throne. No, I'm sorry, first king. I said first and second. And, and that, that, which is significant because Solomon was the wisest and richest man on the earth, and he was the one who was able to build the temple. Big deal. But his story tragically ends because he squanders everything that God provided for him and falls into unfaithfulness and sin, which caused a greater problem, which led the whole nation of Israel into apostasy and divided the kingdom basically into two, the northern and the southern. And so the ministry of the prophet Elijah comes into play here. And he's constantly warning these people against idolatry. You've got to come back to God. They don't listen. Second Kings shows the final part of Elijah's ministry, but the transition to Elisha, who was his successor. And it describes the ongoing idolatry that the people in the northern kingdom, resulting in the conquest by the Assyrians who take them into captivity. The southern kingdom, which is Judah... Managed to last a little bit longer, probably more than a hundred years longer, but in the end they end up in the same boat and it, they're taken captive by the Babylonians. 
In 1 Chronicles, you see the history of Judah after the fall of Israel. And 2 Chronicles continues with the history of Judah and his fall into apostasy, which led to the exile in Babylon. In Ezra, it tells of the release of the Jewish people from Babylon by Persian King Cyrus, who conquered Babylon and the people returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, even though they faced strong opposition from the people living in the land at the time. The land that was promised to them now had outsiders living in it because they weren't there, and so they had to go through a whole lot of stuff in order to get back. Nehemiah follows up this story with the restoration of the Jews to Jerusalem. They come back, and it tells the story of the rebuilding of the city walls under King Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, however you say that. Then you get to Esther, which is the very last of the historical books, and it describes God's preservation and deliverance of Jewish people from the hand of Haman, who basically wanted to wipe them out. And God used Esther to blow the whole plan up. And it's one more incredible story. And what do you see when you put all of these back to back like that? And I know we did it quick. But you begin to see the redemptive history that God is using and trying to pull into play. These are not arbitrary stories, and they are not separated in any way. They are all one after the other, leading up to the Messiah coming, which is what we're celebrating here in a couple of weeks. It's all this. This is the things that they were looking forward to. Now, I know I overloaded your brain probably with a lot of information. You may have to go home and stretch. I understand that. And stuff, But I wanted to give you somewhat of a foundation to see where we're going next. We're going to break this down in a lot more detail than a lot easier to swallow than the basic overview of the Old Testament. But when you get that in mind, it's one book. See, we've made the mistake, a lot of churches have made the mistake, is we call the Old Testament the Old Covenant, we call the New Testament the New Covenant. And that's not the case. It, the Old Testament is many Old Covenants. The New Testament is the Awaited Covenant. The one that they were all hoping for. Built on better promises. The promises of God. The promises that you and I relish today and very much take for granted. As you said this morning, hey, we're under grace. We can do that. It's okay. We miss out on all the nuances that are going on from the very beginning of the book and stuff. And so as we do this over the next several weeks, it is going to be, I promise you, if I can talk slow enough, I promise you that you guys will have an appreciation for your Bible like you've never had before. Because when the Holy Spirit illuminates these scriptures, just like He did with them, just like He did with the apostles, you know, right after Jesus revealed Himself, it's like the light comes on. And it changes things in you. It's suddenly that passion for reaching the lost changes because you see, and your appreciation for Israel changes because they went through a lot of stuff. A lot of it's self-inflicted, but went through a lot of stuff so that we could have this. Because God chose them to bring the Messiah through. 